Hello and welcome to another Linklaters podcast on payments regulation. Every month we will talk about the latest legal developments which impact the payments industry. Today I'm joined by two of our payments regulation experts, Jean Price. Hello. And Harry Edis. Hello. Let's start with something which is a major headache for payment service providers, fraud. Of course, there are lots of different ways to steal money from someone, but one type of payment fraud has received special attention in recent years, hasn't it, Jean? That's right. This is the authorised push payment scam. So this isn't when somebody just cracks into your account and sends money from it. These are actually payments that you yourself have put through. And it became such an issue that in last May, um, a new contingent reimbursement model code was introduced on the 28th of May. Um, And this is really to cover those situations where customers into tricked into authorising a payment to an account that they believe belongs to a legitimate payee, but in fact is um, controlled by a scammer. And this is a real problem in the UK. There was a UK finance report um, which looked at the figures from the first half of 2019. And in that first half, there were 207.5 million worth of scams. Um, And that's 57,549 scams. And of that, they only managed to get 39.3 million returned to customers. One thing that is really worth noting is that over 4,000 of the scams were business transactions. Um, So that's really hitting people hard there. A lot of that is on the invoice side of things. Um, It only actually includes the numbers for one month of the CRM. So it'll be interesting to see what the latest set of figures look like when those come out um, this year. So is the type of scam, um, for example, if I think I'm paying my builder and I get an invoice through, but in fact the fraudster has changed the invoice details, so actually I'm not paying my builder, I'm paying the fraudster? That's right. In fact, that's one of the most common um, types of fraud by by value. Those are very high value ones, in fact. Um, but the biggest single type of fraud is investment fraud. So um, 20% of all APP scams were investment scams. So this is where people are looking for a quick return on their buck um, and their details are either harvested online through um, fake private banks or investment firms or they've responded to an advertisement and it's done that way round. I mean, everyone will know about the purchase scam. So, you know, you buy that very, very cheap LG television from China uh, that never actually gets received. Those are another, another big ones. They're very common through the auction sites and social media. Romance scams, we read about those in the papers all the time. Um, and I was still stunned to find out that 8% is advanced fee scams because most of us will have had at some time an email um, saying that we can share in a will payment or a Nigerian prince wants help getting gold out of the country. But seems 8% of these scams still are successful on that. So these scams are obviously happening, they're obviously a problem. There have been several stories in the press about them um, over the last few years. What has been done to try and tackle this type of fraud? So as I say, the biggest development in this has been the the new model, and that seeks to reduce the occurrence of scams, increase the number of um, people protected, and to minimise disruption to the payment journey, because we all want to be protected, but we also want to be able to make payments very quickly. Um, It's not a guarantee anyone else will get their money back, but it has got significant market coverage. So eight of the major providers, which is 17 consumer 
brands. So as you'd expect, Barclays, Lloyds, HSBC, Santander are all in there. Um, of the sort of new banks, there's only two, in fact, Starling Bank and Metro Bank, but they are signed up. And that covers 85% of the known APP sort of scam market, if you will. Um, and it's not just consumers who are protected. Like the payment services um, regulations, it also extends to micro enterprises and small charities. Um, and it's about the process of bringing about the authorised payment. So these very often turn up when you're starting something. You're either sending a payment, you're adding a new pay, payee, you're amending an existing payee. Um, so it's all those acts that are taken by the customer to authorise the execution of the payment. Um, and it ends with the initial reception of the transaction funds in the payee account. So if the scamster has managed to get it out of that landing account to another account, the CRM won't help you. That's, that, that's gone. Um, so we did have um, the confirmation of pay was due to come in this uh, last year, but that's now been pushed to this year. That will help where it's actually landing an account that's not in the name that it was expected to land in. So it'll be interesting, again, to see how that pans out. The other thing to remember is that it's only for GBP um, domiciled UK accounts. Um, so it won't cover your euro transactions or your dollar transactions, but it does cover any um, push payment channel. That said, the most common way of these frauds happening is through faster payments, because clearly the money moves very quickly then, and the vast majority of it is, is through internet banking. Um, so say it covers the point of first reception of the funds, and it only covers payments made after the code came into force. And is this a mandatory code or a voluntary code? No, it's only a voluntary code, which brings up the interesting um, issue of what happens if you've got um, a receiving bank who's not a firm member. As I say, most of the big groups are covered, but there are a fair few, particularly in the private banking space, that aren't. Um, and the rules say that the customer's firm needs to make best endeavours to contact the non-code firm to seek cooperation in bearing the costs of reimbursement. Um, I'm not quite sure how that one will work out when I've been talking to non-code firms. Um, they should then pay 100% of the money to the customer and try and get the money back or share of it from the, um, the non-code bank. But, but that is, as you've identified, a bit of a gap. And what else does the uh, the model code recommend? I mean, I've seen, for example, various warnings come up when I use online banking recently. Yes, that's the big one. A big piece of it is around consumer education and the awareness can um, campaigns. And we all have seen when we try and do an internet banking transaction now, it says, what's this for? Is it for goods? Is it to a family member? Are you sure you want to pay it? Um, and what's interesting with that is if you've ignored all that and send it, then it may mean you're not entitled to any reimbursement at all uh, because you're meant to be taking um, responsibility for ensuring you're paying who you think you pay. Um, so what it does is it, it requires the firms to put in um, procedures to detect, prevent and respond to APB claims. And notably, there are a higher standard of care for people perceived as vulnerable customers. And if you look at some of the FOS responses, um, FOS decisions from sort of late last year, what you will notice is that quite often these are people who are 
suggestible. And what it means is now that you've got to have these effective warnings, which you've already alluded to. But the bank, if it has any concern that the payment is a scam, has got to take appropriate action to delay the money leaving the account um, while it investigates. So that's got an interesting tension with when you've got to pay out under the payment services regulation. So it'll be interesting to see how the banks react to that. Is it worth talking about um, no-blame scenarios and what that means and how the code relates to them? Yeah, so, I mean, the one thing that is clear is that scamsters are getting more and more sophisticated over time. We still see some very basic ones, but a lot of them, particularly in the business area, because if you think about it, that's where someone has to have intercepted a genuine invoice and put new payment details in. So it is a complex Thing. So you could have the position where no one's to blame, in which case um, this, there is a no-fault fund being set up under the CRM and the firm, the customer's firm should pay 100% of it um, and then make a claim from the fund. So if there has been a scam, how quickly can people expect to get their money back? Once they've reported it, the decision has to be made, it says, without undue delay, but in any event, no later than 15 days from when the customer called to say there was an issue. It can be extended, um, setting out reasons for the delay and giving a new date for decision if, for example, it's a particularly complex matter or it's something that's under a wider investigation. But there is always a long stop date of 35 days um, if if notice is given to the customer. And once they've made the decision to pay, they've got to make payment without delay. So that is, a, a, that is new. Um, so it should mean people getting reimbursed much more quickly. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the numbers do on this because, as I said, we are talking hundreds of millions each year that the bank are now going to have to pay out fairly swiftly. You mentioned confirmation of payee earlier. Do you want to explain what that is? Yes, this is an initiative which was meant to have come in last year. However, it had been delayed because it was suddenly realised, or maybe not so suddenly, that it's a very complex um, IT build. Um, of course, banks have been taking up a lot of their IT term, term getting ready for strong customer authentication. Um, so what this does is it's, it's to raise concerns before the payment is made, because obviously it's much easier to stop payments going out than um, to claw it back once it's gone. And what this will require is that the bank, when they process an online payment, that they compare the name on the receiving bank with the details entered by the payer. And it's to flag. So where I think I'm sending money to one person, um, I'm not sending it to another person. So Without the confirmation of payment, at the moment, only the account number and the code are cross-referenced, but it also is done after time. It's not done in real time. So this will make um, a, a significant difference. And the six major UK banking groups have agreed to sign up to that um, by the 31st of March 2020. And is there anything else that payments firms are thinking about in this area? Um, yes, well, at this sort of very similar time to the code, the DISP rules, um, so the dispute resolution rules for the FCA um, were amended so that um, a customer, oh sorry, a complainant can now bring a claim against the receiving bank. 
So that's quite interesting, not just own their own payment service provider, but the people who took, who received the funds in the first place. And we're seeing the false decisions coming out on that now. And actually a fair few of them are being upheld, which, is, which was interesting to note. And I suppose just by way of roundup, Fraud isn't going away. The figures are upticking all the time. They're getting more sophisticated. Um, and the banks are the people who have to address this because they're the ones who see more of it. You or I might see one or two and we might get our letter telling us about our significant inheritance from someone we've never heard. Um, but they are seeing hundreds of thousands of these and therefore best place. And the question really is how the banks get on the front foot so that they're not always reactive, but they are out there in the market seeing how the campsters are going to go forward. Every time one door gets closed, they will find another. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Let's turn now to operational resilience. The UK regulators and the European Commission have consultations open at the moment on this subject. Harry, why are the regulators talking about resilience? Well, Simon, regulators have actually been talking about resilience themes for many years now. And you can see a patchwork quilt of rules which apply uh, to payment services firms on outsourcing, governance and, and the like. Um, but really, the, the, the current aim of the regulators is really a response to some very high profile outages which have been suffered by financial services firms over the course of the last few years. I'm not going to name names, but we've got lots of examples of where people have not been able to access their cash for weeks on end. Um, or have been subject to some, some critical data breaches. And this really is um, as a result of a combination of technological change, systems complexity, um, much more emphasis on the use of, uh, of technology in the way that um, uh, services are provided, and frankly a much more hostile cyber environment that mean that operational disruption is much more likely to happen and have a great impact on consumers. But it's important to note that it's not just cyber. We're talking things like IT upgrades, which are responsible for some of the more um, well-known uh, instances of operational disruption over the course of the last, um, last few years. Um, so operational resilience here is it's all about preparing to withstand this type of disruption to your business. So the Bank of England and the FCA are, are consulting on operational resilience, aren't they? Um, they are. So this actually started off about um, almost two years ago in 2018 when uh, the Treasury, the PRA and the FCA uh, released a joint um, paper on operational resilience. And that was followed up just before Christmas uh, last year when the PRA and the FCA both put out papers um, on operational resilience. And some of the key themes that have um, come out of this is they're really trying to get uh, a change of culture here, both for uh, the regulators to uh, impress upon the industry that problems will happen. So they shouldn't be spending ever increasing amount of resources to try and prevent things happening. They should acknowledge that um, problems will arise in the way in which they provide their services, um, but they should be planning properly for what happens when problems do arise and how to get those services back on uh, an even keel as quickly as possible. So they're trying to get firms to look at this on a holistic basis. So looking at a, in the terms of business services rather than individual processes, which is where some of the uh, current rules really sit. Thinking ahead to what those new rules might look like, um, is it worth saying actually, first of all, who those rules would apply to? 
Yeah, so the FCA rules are going to apply to banks, e-money institutions and uh, payment institutions. And the FCA rules are focused on uh, consumer harm and impact to uh, the financial markets infrastructure. Um, and, the P and the Bank of England um, PRA uh, rules are also going to apply to payment system operators and they're looking more at the impact to financial stability. And then looking at those rules, what do they mean in practice for, for those firms? So there are a couple of, there are about five key things which um, the rules um, require. So as I mentioned, um, they're really trying to focus on business services. So what firms will first need to do is they need to itemize the business services that they provide to uh, their customers and to identify whether those business services are important or not. And they will be deemed to be important where a prolonged disruption to them would cause particular harm. So for example, in the FCA, particular harm to consumers or a particular harm to the financial markets uh, infrastructure. So having identified those business services, um, for the important business services, firms have to identify and document the people, processes, technology, facilities, information, data necessary to deliver each of those uh, important business services. Um, this mapping exercise effectively to help identify where vulnerabilities are in, um, in the system. The firms then need to set impact tolerances, and these impact tolerances are the point at which disruption would cause an intolerable level of harm to consumers um, or threaten the transfer of payments uh, in the payment system, for, for, for example, for payments um, institutions. And then firms have to test, plan and document. So they've got to do scenario testing to um, determine how to, um, you know, what impact a disruption is going to have. Uh, and how they're going to be able to get their services back up and running, how they're going to be able to fix vulnerabilities. They're going to have to have communication plans and other crisis plans to be uh, reviewed and tested uh, regularly with self-assessment of, of compliance with all of the rules documented and reviewed by, um, by senior management. And then finally, firms are required to remain within the tolerance levels they have set. So if, for example, a firm has said that um, uh, a data breach um, will have six hours worth of uh, impact tolerance. That means that they have to get the data breach fixed within that, um, uh, within that six hour period. So that all seems to be setting quite a high bar. I think it does, Simon, that's exactly right. Um, uh, uh, the firms will have uh, quite a bit of the stuff that they uh, are required to deal with this, but certainly not in the holistic way that the FCA wants. And I think particularly for payment uh, institutions, the lift is going to be bigger because a lot of this, um, a lot of the work that will need to be done will have already been done by FCA and PRA regulated firms through the senior manager regime implementation of people have gone through over the course of the last few years. But of course, payment services firms have not had to uh, implement senior manager regimes and therefore they will not have the same sorts of mapping uh, or are likely not to have the same sorts of mapping uh, that those, those firms have. So there really is, um, a, and given the importance of payment services firms in the uh, financial markets network, um, I think it really is going to be quite a big lift for um, a lot of the payment services firms. And how long do uh, payments firms have to prepare for these new rules? 
So the consultation for um, both the PRA and the uh, FCA is open until uh, the 6th of April. And the plan is to finalise uh, the rules. We have the draft rules already. Uh, and the plan is to finalise those rules before the end of the year, with the rules then to take effect, um, broadly speaking, by the end of 2021. Um, but there is um, a three-year period before the impact tolerances actually come into force. So firms will have three years effectively to uh, finally set their impact tolerances and learn how to live within them. Okay, so there's a three-year period in which you uh, you need to have all the documentation ready and you, you need to have set those impact tolerances, but actually you don't need to remain within them for a little while longer. That's absolutely right. And I think that's actually quite an important uh, point here because the these rules are going to place a real impact actually um, for people who rely on third-party service providers um, or outsource a lot of their services. So they're clearly already quite... Um, detailed rules which apply to material outsourcings, um, but they don't really apply to sort of standard third-party uh, service providers. And for firms who rely on those, for example, it'll be very um, difficult, I think, for them to be able to um, set their impact tolerances and know that they are going to be able to get their businesses, their business services back up and running within their impact tolerance if they are reliant on a third party to provide that. Uh, and a key question will be how far do you need to go into uh, the business models of your third party service providers uh, and your uh, outsource service providers in order to assess how you are going to be able to provide your services. Um, now, anyone who has negotiated an outsourcing agreement will know how um, difficult some firms are, particularly the large tech firms, for example. Um, and for third party service providers for whom none of these rules have ever bitten, um, I think it's going to be really quite a big lift. And then for payment service providers in particular, are there any details in the proposals that they should be looking out for? So that one I've actually just been talking around, um, the third-party um, service providers um, and outsource providers, I think, is a key thing, uh, particularly for those payment services firms who sit within chains of different people um, within a chain of payment and how, reliance, uh, how, how much reliance you place on your business service on uh, third party. So I think that is going to be a, a key issue. I think there is some, as I mentioned, there is some overlap with existing rules. Uh, PSD2, for example, already requires payment service providers to manage operational security risks. Um, but these really are much more detailed. So people will have to really get into the uh, granularity of what is um, required. I think another key change, as I mentioned uh, earlier, was around senior management. Uh, the fact that payment services firms have not been subject to the senior managers regime. Um, whereas these new rules um, will require um, governance all through, um, all, all through the business. It'll have to be signed off by the board uh, and there's likely to be one person who is going to be made responsible for putting in place uh, that framework. Now that is all meat and drink to a um, financial services firm for whom SMCR um, is second nature, but for payment services firms, I think that is going to be uh, quite a big shift um, in responsibility for one particular um, individual. And is there any sense of um, applying these rules in a, in a proportionate way? Because obviously there are a wide scale of, of, of different sizes of firms that this might apply to. So yes, it's a short answer um, in theory. In practice, I think we will have to wait and see how that is actually applied. So the regulators have definitely said that they intend this policy to 
to be proportionate and uh, flexible. Um, and the FCA has said that it expects that the number of important business services offered by a firm will be proportionate to its role um, and size. So that obviously is going to be helpful for the smaller payment providers. But the FCA has also noted that even small payments firms can be highly impactful in terms of the harm that can arise from their disruption. And like all things with regulators, hindsight is always slightly 2020. And if a small firm decides to take a proportionate approach, but then there is a significant business impact and the FCA um, find out that actually um, they haven't necessarily applied their impact tolerances quite right, uh, I'm slightly dubious of how proportionate that regime will actually be and enforcement action could well follow. Thank you very much. So this is obviously a big topic which is going to play out for the industry over the next few years and we will of course pick it up in future episodes. Before we wrap things up, we just have time for our What You Might Have Missed feature. In my excitement last month, I got the name wrong, but the idea hasn't changed. Every month, one of us has a go at summarising a topic which may not have grabbed the headlines, but is worth knowing about, and doing so in just 30 seconds. This month, Jean has pulled the short straw and is going to cover open finance. So, over to you, Jean. What you might have missed, open finance. As you may guess from the name, Open Finance is taking the concept behind open banking and extending it to other types of financial data. So this is now going to include savings, mortgages, consumer credit. My favourite topic. Given that customers own their financial data, the big idea is that they should be able to share access to that data with third parties in a secure way. Um, potentially this means customers should be able to have a holistic view of their finances via a single interface. Obviously with open banking, you do have bank accounts at the moment, but this is going to push this way out. So explore that vision. The FCA has issued a call for input and that invites um, feedback on the potential benefits and risks. In fact, I counted more risks than benefits, but never mind, of opening up customer data in that way. And that call for input closes on the 17th of March for anyone who wants to make their submissions. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who has got in touch with us since our last episode. If you have any questions or would like something covered in a future episode, you can tweet us at linklaterstech or email us fintech.podcast at linklaters.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.